This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. America WK with your host, Andrew WK. Explore those parts of ourselves that never occurred to us that we even could investigate. There is so much to lead us, so many places that we can go, so many roads to follow. And most of them, and the most valuable ones, are inside of ourselves. America WK, Saturdays, 10 a.m. to noon on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders, America is the greatest country in the world. Thank you so much for being here. Should we, uh, Griff, should we uh, tell the people uh, what just happened or should we just pretend like we were, uh, uh, like I'm a professional and I walked in here an hour ago and had everything properly aligned and set up? Should we just pretend that that's how it went down or should we tell the story of how I walked in here five minutes ago late for a million unappropriate reasons and nothing was set up properly and had to press every single button until the one uh, assortment of buttons happened to be properly pressed and walked and sat down here three seconds before airtime. We're not going to tell that we're going to talk. I've been here diligently for hours, ready to go for this very moment. That's the official story, and I'm sticking to it. How are you, Slater Crusaders? Thank you for being here. Slater Radio on Twitter, and uh, Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Whew. I want to tell you a story about last Saturday night. I had the, uh, the honor of emceeing an event for a group called... The East County Posse. So if I can describe a little bit about San Diego. Uh, San Diego County. San Diego is the city. San Diego County is the county. Uh, it's huge. Um, it's something like these are ballpark facts. But the, the population of San Diego County is bigger than 20 states. And the size of San Diego County is bigger than a couple states as well. So it's a very big area. And you have two different worlds <laughs> in this area. You have the coastline, which you can imagine what that's like. And then you have what we call East County. East County, not too different from where I lived before I lived in San Diego, Jackson, Tennessee. I'm talking, you drive, you you go to, uh, so I live in a place called Poway, just outside Poway. You go to Poway, which is East County, horses walking down the street. Cowboy hats, cowboy boots. Feed stores. I mean, <laughs> it's like as country as you could possibly get. It feels like you're in Tennessee. So there's this group called East County Posse. And it was country western theme. And there were 600 people at this event. Um, and everyone just went to the nines with the country western theme. But, I mean, with the East County Posse, it could have been you know dressed like it's a Tuesday theme. And, and it wouldn't have looked much different. Um but this room was full of 600 people and 600 very wealthy people. And country rich people are my favorite kind of rich people. Right? <laughs> you never know it. Country rich is my favorite kind. That's why I love that Montgomery Gentry song. Is it where I come from? Where he says, oh, you got the old man over there in the rocking chair by the courthouse square. He could buy your fancy car with $100 bills. Country rich. 
So the East County Posse, if I could describe them in just a few words, they are Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Do you remember that show? Extreme Makeover Home Edition without the desire to be recognized in any way. In fact, they're Extreme Makeover Home Edition and we don't want to be recognized. Do not recognize us. And they came to the studio uh, a couple weeks ago and they wanted me to MC their event. And I said, I'll do it. But only under one condition. And I knew I had the... Uh, I had the upper hand in this situation. And I, I could call the shots at this point. I was driving a hard bargain. I said, I'll do it. I'll MC your event. But under one condition, gentlemen. I'll only do it if you let me tell your stories of the amazing things that you do for people. And honestly, they, they acted as if I asked them for a $100,000 speaking fee. They were like, <sighs> all right. <laughs> I was like, yeah, score. Most people, when they come to the studio and they, they want me to be a part of something, they, or, or, they, uh, or they want an interview on the air or something, it's because they want recognition. They want publicity. They want notoriety. These guys want to remain a secret. I just can't let them, though. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I just can't let them. I'll give you an example, Leslie. Leslie, uh, her son, has cerebral palsy. He's 11. Uh, he's also blind. Leslie loves her son with the fire of a thousand sons. It, it's, she could not be more proud of her son. Now, Leslie lives in an older home. The bathroom, uh, gosh, it's one of those bathrooms, you know, in older homes where it's not even designed for like a person. You got to like, open the door and you got to kind of sneak between the door and the toilet in order to close the door. And It's an older bathroom, let alone designed for uh, any special needs. And um, now her son's getting bigger. He's 11, right? So she can't carry and bathe him in this tiny bathroom. So you know what she does? You know what she's been doing for years? She would drive 45 minutes to the children's hospital just so her son could have a bath. Drive to the children's hospital twice a week to take a bath. So the guys at East County Posse got word of this. And they went in and they renovated her bathroom. And made it possible for this family to do all the things that we take for granted every day. So selfless service uh, and love. Oh, and by the way, so East County Positive, they did that uh, you know, eight months ago. Didn't tell anyone. Didn't tell anyone. I said, you guys are crazy. Let me tell your story. You guys keep doing what you're doing, but I need to tell these stories so that people will be inspired to go do other amazing things like you're doing. And they're like, okay. <laughs> to see Leslie. Mom, so proud of her son. And then Leslie, so strong to take on life every single day, no matter what those obstacles are. And, and to be so grateful for the blessings in her life and to be so grateful for the help of her neighbors who helped her out for no other reason than they've discovered the purpose of life themselves. 
that's as good of a that's as good as it gets. Like, how do you get any better than that? So, why do I share this story? I share this story because I want to talk about. Hmm, how do I word this? This isn't the right word. Uh, let me try this one. I share this because I want to talk about protecting women and children, which I believe is the highest moral imperative, the highest evolutionary imperative. It's not only more moral, uh, you know, it can be subjective. I'm talking about the highest evolutionary uh, imperative, just objectively, the, the most important thing just for the continued existence of the species is to protect women and children. Coming up in the next hour, I want to share a speech from uh, Robert Heinlein. Robert Heinlein is one of the greatest science fiction writers ever. Uh, he's also a graduate of the Naval Academy and in 1929, I think. And in 1973, he went back and gave a speech on patriotism. And I want to share it in full in the next hour. But if I may sneak ahead and just share this one sentence here, this one paragraph. He's talking about patriotism. And he says it means that you place the welfare of your nation ahead of your own, even if it costs you your life. Men who go down in the sea in ships have long had another way of expressing the same moral behavior, tagged by this abstract expression, patriotism. Spelled out in simple Anglo-Saxon words, patriotism reads, women and children first. And that is the moral result of realizing a self-evident biological fact, and that is that men are expendable. Women and children are not. A tribe or a nation can lose a high percentage of its men and still pick up the pieces and go on as long as the women and children are saved. But if you fail to save the women and children, you've had it. You're done. You're through. As a mathematical proposition in the facts of biology, children and women of childbearing age are the ultimate treasure that we must save. Every human culture is based on women and children first, and any attempt to do it any other way leads quickly to extinction. Women and children first. All that being said, I want to play this clip right here. This is uh, Ben Carson on Meet the Press last Sunday. Clip one. And we, and we have laws that, you know, take care of that. Does life begin at conception? I believe it does. Does that mean um, whose right, I guess, should be superseded? The mother or the unborn child? Whose rights, who has greater rights? In the ideal situation, the mother should not believe that the baby is her enemy and should not be looking to terminate the baby. You know, things are set up in such a way that the, the person in the world who has the greatest interest in protecting the baby is the mother. We've allowed the purveyors of the vision to make mothers think that that baby is their enemy and that they have a right to kill it. Can you see how perverted that line of thinking is? Let me stop there. Think about that. So we've created a culture where not only are men not allowed to be involved in this situation, not only are men not allowed 
to do what their highest moral calling is to do, protect women and children. We're supposed to stand down. And then women are told that they don't need to protect children. So men, you're not allowed to be involved at all. And then women, you are now supposed to think in certain circumstances that the baby, your baby, is your enemy. That There can be nothing more against the natural order of things than that. If babies could be the enemy of women, or a baby be the enemy of a woman, wouldn't Leslie have a, have a terrorist living in her home? For the love of Pia, her son has cerebral palsy and is blind. And you know what the reaction is? Nothing but love. Nothing but love. Like I said, love of the, the fury and fire of a thousand sons. Unbelievable, overwhelming love. Leslie to her son. And what about the community? Nothing but love and support. Continued absolute love and support. This is how things should work. This is the natural order of things. And people are trying to completely flip it on its head and make it seem right side up. So I I share all that just because we're told one thing is true. And I think it's important to see how it's uh, how it's supposed to work. And good on Ben Carson for bringing it back to that eternal truth. one 93 Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders. I'm excited to share this uh, Heinlein speech. I'll do it in the next hour. I, uh, it's on the longer side, actually, so I need the I need the full hour. No, I don't need the full hour, but I need a good long segment. So we'll do it at the top of uh, next hour. I want to do one last segment here on uh, sort of-ish abortion, and then we'll move on, and we're not going to cover super heavy stuff uh, like this anymore. For instance, next segment, I want to talk about bacon. And how that bacon study from uh, Monday, which was the news story all day Monday on every newscast, every radio station, every TV station, nightly news, all of them. And it's totally ridiculous. <laughs> Start to finish, the whole thing's absurd. Uh, so I want to just debunk that and we can learn some lessons uh, as well. Have you ever heard of the gel man amnesia effect? The gel man amnesia effect. We'll talk about that coming up uh, in the rest of this hour as well. Uh, but I want to wrap up this uh, conversation here. So my uh, last weekend, my church had a park service. We do this a few times a year, and uh, we go to a park and do a short service and then have a big potluck fun time. And they got these big blow-up slides for the kiddos. And I took it upon myself to watch after two of the kiddos who were next to me. They're both 10. Uh, so they ran over to the the big slide. And when I say took it upon myself, what I, what I, what I mean by that is I, I, I wanted to go on the big blow up slide and they happened to go with me, but then there were already so many kids that I couldn't go on it. So I was like, ah, I guess I'll just watch them. So one of the kids who's 10 is, uh, an athlete more so than any of the kids, just super athletic. 
And a lot of the kids were on the younger side. So he runs up on this big blow-up slide thing and just I, like leaps in the air and bounces off and flies another three feet in the air. It's a huge, like ridiculous. I mean, three feet high to him, three feet of air, it's like 30 feet to a 10-year-old, right? Uh, so he was just an animal on this thing. And he and his buddy, they, they go up in there. Like, he, they're doing front flips off the top. He's doing a front flip and then bouncing down. The, the, it's unbelievable. Borderline really dangerous, but I don't know. Whatever. It looked like fun. So watching the kids do this. And then uh, he runs up the slide another time. And at the top of the slide is a little girl. She couldn't have been two, I don't think. And she just sits down and is waiting to be pushed basically right she's not even old enough to scoot herself down the slide so she's just sitting at the top sitting there so the kid amari sits next to her and pushes her down the slide and keeps a hand on her the whole time and they get to the bottom he helps her climb back to the top there's a lot of kids run so he protects her as he walks they, they climb back up to the top of the slide and then the next time they get up there he sits down and then puts her in his lap and they slide down together so they got down to the bottom, and I said, Amari, get over here. He goes, what? I said, get over here right now. He's like, oh. I said, do you know that girl? No. My man. Way to help her down the slide, dude. You just helped that girl out big time. That's what a man does. Really proud of you, buddy. Get back to it. Runs back on the side, goes up a hundred other times. That's what men do. Think of all the societal problems that would be solved and avoided forever if, if, if boys knew what it meant to be a man. And there's a 10-year-old protecting this, uh, this girl and serving her. It's beautiful. So I share that uh, on this last point about uh, abortion. And Ben Carson's interview on, on Meet the Press last week, he, did a, he said something else that after that clip that uh, got a lot of attention, got a lot of people freaked out. Um, compared uh, compared abortion to slavery, and again, outrage industry uh, freaks out. But there, there's a one to one analogy uh, between abortion and slavery. In both cases, it relies entirely on dehumanization. With slavery, the idea was that blacks are inferior to to whites. In fact, they're property. They're not humans at all. And today, uh, the declaration that the uh, unborn are not completely human at all that that's I mean, that's the same thing. <laughs> Dehumanization is the only thing that makes each of these institutions possible at all. Slaves are property. Babies are clumps of cells. That's it. They're not human. Now, we know through DNA analysis that an unborn child is distinctly human from the moment of its conception. The baby has its own unique DNA immediately. But we can't say that. Because we have to make it something unhuman or dishuman or not yet human. And that's the only thing that makes this, these, these institutions uh, possible. Now, I just want to draw a distinction here in my remaining 30 seconds. Uh, and this is complicated, but I, generally, I don't think the moral responsibility falls on uh, the woman who's getting an abortion. Because many times they're overwhelmed. They're scared. They're lost. They see no way out. Many times. I blame the abortionists the abortionists the doctors who I put that in quotes who know the truth and take advantage of women anyway and many abortion doctors are men this is not what men do
1-888-900-3393, Slater Radio on the uh, Twitter, Slater Radio on Twitter. Coming up next, we'll talk about bacon and how it's not going to give you cancer. <laughs> Chat about that next. Mike Slater show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Um, before we get on to more important things, and I maybe we'll get to the debate. I don't even know. I feel like I feel like it's all been said. I got a couple points I'd like to make that I guess I haven't heard yet. Anyway, I was on Lou Dobbs last night uh, on Fox Business, and we talked about the debate a little bit there. Um, I have the DVD of it. We're going to put it on YouTube sometime this weekend. But um, so we will talk debate. But I, I got to get this one thing off my chest here before we. Uh, move forward on, on more important things. So, do you remember Monday? Uh, what was the big story of Monday? And it was, uh, when I say Monday, it was all day Monday, all I heard when I was driving into work on my local show, all I heard the news, all the news breaks, all the news breaks during my show, I'd look up and I'd see Fox News talking about it and CNN and blah, blah, blah. blah. Everyone's talking about all day long. The evening news, of <laughs> the newspapers, it is the story of the day on Monday, and that is that processed meats will kill you. Processed meats will give you cancer and you will die. And when I first heard that on Monday, I said two things. And when I, when the, when I, during the news break, came back and I said, I said two things. First, Everything in moderation. Okay. Just you can do whatever you want. Everything in moderation. You can eat whatever you want. Everything in moderation. And the second thing, there's no way that's true. The whole if you eat processed meats, you'll die of cancer. Like I said, there's no way that that study's true. Now I didn't get a chance to read it, but that was just my instinct. It was like, this is ridiculous. Now, of course there's an element of truth to it, naturally. Processed meat is not good for you. Right? It's not like a kale smoothie, but there's no way that it's a killer. So I finally had a chance to look at it the other day and shout out to a friend of the show, the tech guy, um, for doing some research on this as well. Two points. One, the story that bacon is going to kill you is only possible because one, we have a a media that loves sensational stories that scare you. And two, it's only possible because people are terrible at math. That's it. You have to have both of those, right? If, if you had a sensational media who likes to scare people and people were good at math, then, then the story wouldn't have happened because people would have looked at the story and been like, well, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. Like that. But because people are bad at math, it was able to be a thing. So here's the deal. The study says, by the way, it was a World Health Organization study, and I'll tell you exactly why they did this coming up later. But the World Health Organization had a panel of 22 experts um, who released the conclusion. But the 22 experts weren't unanimous in their conclusion. So even the World Health Organization scientists are uh, have, have different opinions on this. But anyway, point is, they say if you eat 1.8 ounces of processed meat every day, that's two pieces of bacon or a hot dog. Let's just go with a hot dog, right? 1.8 ounces a day, then your risk of colorectal cancer will increase by 18%. 
increased by 18%. Now, I should note here that the average American has about half of that amount of processed meat every day, about half. So, so you have to eat twice as much as the average American in order for your colorectal cancer risk to increase by 18%. Now, here comes the math part. When people hear the news, uh, oh my gosh, 18% increase in, in cancer? People think that the risk of cancer just jumped through the roof. So if you had a 1% chance of getting something, now, because you have so much hot dogs, now you're going to get a 19% chance of getting it. So now you have a 1 in 5 chance of getting cancer, right? Because 1% plus 18% is 19%. I graduated third grade. I know that. The problem is math. If you had a 1% chance of getting something before, and your chances of that of getting that thing increased by 18%, you don't have a 19% chance of getting it. You have a 1.1% chance of getting it. You have to find 18% of 1 and then add it to the 1%. So 18% of 1 is 0.1, about. So you add the 0.1 to the 1. So now your chances of getting it are 1.1, not 19. And that's a big difference. So to apply it to this World Health Organization study... You have to ask, what were my chances of getting colorectal cancer? If my chances have now increased by 18%, assuming I eat a hot dog a day, if my chances have increased by 18%, what were my chances? So if you're a man, and it's about the same for women too, but if you're a man, you have a 4.84% of getting a chance of getting colorectal cancer. 4.84%. So let's just say that you have a hot dog a day. You have... An 18% higher chance of getting cancer now, okay? So you have to find 18% of 4.85, which is your original chance of getting cancer. So 18% of uh, 4.85 is 0.873. You got to add 0.873. I know math on radio doesn't work, but if you add 0.873 to 4.85, your new chances of getting colorectal cancer are a whopping 5.7%. So your odds of getting colorectal cancer, if you have a hot dog a day, went from 4.85% to 5.72%. So, like, no difference at all. Certainly nothing that, that, would, that would require or necessitate or explain nonstop media coverage all day on Monday. And I'll prove it. Switch the narrative around. Switch it around. Let's say someone told you, how often do you have bacon? I had some bacon this morning, actually. How often do you have bacon? Let's say, or hot dog or processed meats or whatever. Let's say someone told you that you need to give up bacon. It's terrible for you. You got to give up bacon. You got to give up all your processed meats. And you say, why? Why do I have to not, never eat bacon again? And they say, well, if you, if you give up bacon, then it's going to decrease your chances of getting colorectal cancer. And you're like, really? Wow. Like, how much will it decrease my chances? Uh, by about 0.8%. Wait, what? Yeah, less than one percentage point is how much your chances uh, will go down if you stop eating bacon and all processed meats. No one, like, if, 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 the, if the news story was, if you eat bacon, your odds of getting cancer are 5.72%, but if you stop, your new odds are 4.85. You better stop eating bacon forever. Like, no, that would be a ridiculous media story. And everyone would be like, well, that's totally not worth it. I'm still going to eat bacon. So this is how the media wins. They scare people. This is how the media changes behavior. They scare people. This is how the media distracts you. They scare you.
on this Halloween. So listen, I know that math is hard over the radio, but I, I, like, I hope that makes sense. I'll, I'll, one last analogy. If I said there is an 18% higher chance that I am going to kick you in the shin, your first question would probably be, well, what were my chances of you kicking me in the shin? And I would say, well, almost no chance. There's almost no chance that I'm going to kick you in the shin today. Really pretty close to zero. I could. I could. I mean, there is a chance. You're saying there's a chance. But it's almost no chance. Now, there's an 18% higher chance. But 18% higher than almost nothing is still almost nothing. Anyway, I'll stop here. You get the idea. Um, the reason this is important, this story... And by the way, I I, uh, I, you, I told this math in uh, my local show, and people called in and they say, Cider, there's a lot of unhealthy people in the country, and they're obese and diabetic and this, and they shouldn't eat processed meats. So how dare you tell the truth about this World Health Organization study? And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course there's people who are unhealthy and whatever, but... You don't have to go around scaring everyone and telling everyone that if you eat bacon, you're going to get cancer. It's just not true. And it's it's frustrating to me because I am super health nut like that. And I I am. So I, I was not always super health nut. But ever since being out here in California, you kind of get a little bit of that hippie California stuff wears off on you. All right. So I have my green smoothie in the morning. I know. I know. I get it. Call me all the names you want. So I'm a pretty healthy guy, healthier than most, but you can still have bacon every once in a while and not worry about getting cancer. Everything in moderation, run a little bit, go on some walks, have some vegetables and have some bacon. You'll be fine. And also this fact that people are bad at math is the cause of many a problem in politics land, including the gender pay gap. The gender pay gap is just bad math. That's all that is. It doesn't exist. It's bad math. All this talk about income inequality, it's bad math. It's bad uh, conceptual math, like bad um, critical thinking. Right? Income inequality doesn't talk about income mobility, doesn't talk about skill inequality. It's just lack of critical thinking, bad math. All this talk about debt, all this talk about inflation. It's all bad math. People don't know math. And I'm not great at math either, don't get me wrong, but there's some basic concepts that are important. And most Americans have no idea and, 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 and people don't think critically enough to challenge news reports that say, you know, women earn 72 cents on the dollar that men make or the rich are getting richer. Or bacon will increase your chance of can- uh, chances of cancer by 18 like, percent. It's just bad math. <laughs> so never believe any of these things. There's always more to the story. I want to take a break here. We'll come back and talk about the gel man amnesia effect. Uh, Michael Crichton, one of my favorite people of all time, coined this term. And once you know it, it will change how you how you watch and interpret everything in the media forevermore. This will change how you view the media from this point forward. I'll tell you that story next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater. Someone asked me the other day, um, just to just to paint the scene. I got a minute here, just to paint the scene of what was happening. I was skateboarding downtown along the bay in San Diego, and I laughed because it was the first time I've ever skateboarded. And my buddy said, "Hey, you want to go learn to skateboard?" And I said, "No." And he goes, "Ah, come on!" I'm like, nah, I really, really don't want to do that. I did. It's like, ah, oh, come on, don't be a chicken. I said, chicken, I'm 31. What are you doing? Like, what is this chicken business? I don't, I have no desire to learn how to skateboard. Don't call me a chicken. He goes, bonk, bonk, bonk. He said, all right, fine. So we went skateboarding and I was able to stay up. Anyway, so we're riding along and my buddy says, hey, so what sources do you use for your show? And I told him a bunch and he says, well, what have you found to be the most reliable, um, most reliable sources? And I said, huh, yeah, none of them. They're all wrong. And he found that very unsatisfying. He said, what are you talking about? He said, said, how do you know? How do you know they're all wrong? And I said, because every time anyone has ever written anything about me, it's always completely wrong. And I don't just mean like a word or two. I mean, it's it's completely wrong. And and that's been true my whole life. When I've been interviewed in high school for, uh, you know, high school sports in the local paper to interviewed in national papers for whatever, they're always wrong. And like, like things like, I didn't say that. Like, what are you, like, what are you talking about? I distinctly remember this conversation we had with the reporter. I never said that. Or you missed the word not in the middle of it or something. like. And once you see how poorly people quote you, you can only assume that they quote everyone as poorly. And every story must be just as wrong as the one about you. So there's something called the gel man amnesia effect and this is how it was described by the great michael crichton who's one of my all-time favorite people he had the the, my 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 quick michael crichton trivia fact is he's the only person ever to have the number one book movie and tv show at the same time which is a pretty sweet so anyway he says the media carries with it credibility that is totally undeserved he says, you have all experienced this in what I call the Murray Gelman amnesia effect. I call it by this name because I once discussed it with Murray Gelman. And by dropping a famous name, I imply greater importance to myself and to the effect than it otherwise would have. Anyway, briefly stated, the Gelman, G-E-L-L-M-A-N-N, the Gelman amnesia effect is as follows. You open the newspaper to an article on some subject you know well. In Murray's case, physics. In mine, show business. And you read the article. And see that the journalist has absolutely no understanding of either the facts or the issues. Often the article is so wrong, it presents the story backward, reversing cause and effect. I call these the wet streets cause rain stories. Papers are full of them. In any case, you read with exasperation or amusement the multiple errors in a story, then turn the page to national or international affairs, and read as if the rest of the newspaper was somehow more accurate about Palestine than the baloney that you just read. You turn the page and forget what you know. Does that make sense? So you read an article about something you know about, and it's so epically wrong. You're just like, what, what, what's this person high? Like, what are you talking? And then you turn the page, and you, they, you once again go back to thinking that every other article, every other article must be 100% accurate in every way. But why? Why Why would you make that assumption? And that's what Crichton was saying. He says the media carries with it a credibility that is totally undeserved. 
think about this next time you read an article that you you catch and you're like, whoa, that is that is not right at all. Now read every article, assuming that it's just as poorly written, just as poorly fact checked, just as poorly understood by the person who wrote it as the article that you know for a fact is wrong. Media knows almost nothing. Take everything with as much of a grain of salt as possible. And think, well, Sutter, how do we know anything? <laughs> if, if, that, if that's true, how do we ever? How do we proceed? You proceed by thinking about and talking about and concerning ourselves with things that matter, things that are important, things that are eternal, things that we know are true. Put our energies to that. It'll be much more encouraging and life-building. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. We're gonna try something here. This is uh, a long, um, it's a longer speech. You know, it's not good to, to read on radio. It's sort of Radio 101, but uh, I think it's really good. And I would do a disservice to it to, to paraphrase. So I'll read it if you think that's okay. Uh, and for the, for the love of Pete, uh, Glenn Beck the other day did his uh, Edgar Allan Poe reading. So I can do a little reading here too. Robert Heinlein, probably one of the greatest science fiction writers ever. Behind, of course, L. Ron Hubbard. Just joking. I said that because I watched a little bit of the 2020 thing about Scientology the other day. Robert the Heinlein. Much better. He graduated from Annapolis in 1929, and he came back to the Academy in 1973 to give a speech on patriotism. And I, I think it's perfect. Um, now, I can't read the whole thing, but I want to read uh, some major parts here. This is what he says. He says, today, and again, this is 1973, but it could be today. Today, in the United States, it is popular among self-styled intellectuals to sneer at patriotism. They seem to think that it is axiomatic that any civilized man is a pacifist. And they treat the military profession with contempt, warmongers, imperialists, hired killers in uniform. You've heard all such sneers and you'll hear them again. One of their favorite quotations is, patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. I disagree. Patriotism is the most practical of all human characteristics. But in the present decadent atmosphere, patriots are often too shy to talk about it as if it were something shameful or an irrational weakness. But patriotism is not sentimental nonsense. Nor is it something dreamed up by demagogues. Patriotism is as necessary. This is the key line. Patriotism is as necessary. A part of man's evolutionary equipment as are his eyes. As useful to the race as eyes are to the individual. A man who is not patriotic is an evolutionary dead end. This is not sentiment, but the hardest 
of logic. I want to take a quick time out and just reiterate his, his opening argument. Certainly in college. And we're seeing more and more in uh, high schools where they're like, you can't wear anything USA on it. No red, white, or blue. Patriotism is seen as inappropriate. Multiculturalism is now the highest virtue. I've told this story many times that when I uh, first got on college campus, uh, the fashionable thing to do was to hang the American flag upside down out of your dorm room window. So all over campus, upside down American flags. And on college campus, if you chanted USA in any circumstance, and you're nothing but a jingoistic pig. And that's why I start off every hour saying America's the greatest country in the world. I started doing that on my college radio show because that's something you were not supposed to say in college. That is, a, like, that is racist hate speech if you say America's the greatest country in the world. I think in college I used to say, I think I used to say America's the greatest country in the world. You know it, I know it, let's not be afraid to say it. I think, I think that's how I started off. But I've shortened it to America's the greatest country in the world. Because we need to be reminded of it because you're not supposed to, to think it, let alone say it. I mean, even today, I mean, you, people can love our country, but you don't want to be that flag-waving caricature of a patriot, right? Because we're, we're more civilized than that. And my argument, and Heinlein's argument, is no, 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 patriotism is nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, it's something to aspire to. But we have to find out what the right definition of patriotism is. So Heinlein spells out four levels of moral behavior. And we'll go from uh, lowest to the highest. Four levels of moral behavior. Now, I'll be clear. These are all moral. So when I say lowest, highest, the lowest is not immoral. These are all moral, but just lowest on that scale to the highest, the most moral. So the lowest is fighting for your own survival. It's the lowest form of moral behavior. Still moral, but lowest form. It's good, right? I mean, if you are so poor in spirit that you won't even fight for your own survival, I mean, that's 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 not good. So the lowest level of, of moral hierarchy is is fighting for your own survival. The next higher level is to work, fight, and and maybe even die for someone in your own immediate family. This is this is good. Like that this and you see it a lot. Um this is why a six pound mother cat is so fierce when she drives off a police dog, right? <laughs> right. Um this is when a dad takes on a moonlighting job to keep his kid in college. This is when a mother dives into a flood to save her drowning child. This is to work, fight, even die for someone in your own immediate family. The next highest moral level is to work, fight, and and maybe even die for a group larger than your immediate family. So you you can see the progression here, right? Yourself, immediate family, someone larger than your immediate family, or more extended than your immediate family. Um, I'll give you an example of this. In nature. The baboon. If you drive through East Africa, you will come across herds of baboons grazing on the countryside. And when you come across this, no one um, no one looks up because there's so many baboons and there's so much to look at, you just keep looking at them. But if you do look up, you'll see that in a nearby tree, there is one adult male baboon just sitting up in the tree. Why? He's keeping watch for leopards. With no warning, 
Uh, a leopard will come and a baboon has no chance. But with a good warning, uh, the baboons can run into the trees. So this baboon is serving his fellow baboons in his own herd. Not just the immediate family herd. Now, of course, baboons don't make moral decisions. They don't have any concept of morality or duty or loyalty or anything like that. But they're still exhibiting the trait of this uh, moral behavior. Makes sense, right? So this baboon is looking out for the, the tribe. People beyond its immediate, baboons beyond its immediate family. So you have levels of hierarchy of moral behavior. Uh, fighting for yourself. Fighting for immediate family. Fighting for extended family or, or tribe or herd. But here's the highest level of moral behavior. I'm going to go back to Robert Heinlein here. He says the highest level is uh, that in which duty and loyalty are shown toward a group of your kind too large for an individual to know all of them. We have a name for that. It's called patriotism. Duty and loyalty shown to a group too large for an individual to know all of them. It means that you place the welfare of your nation ahead of even your own, even if it costs you your life. Men who go down in the sea in ships have long had another way of expressing this concept. Patriotism reads women and children first. And we talked about this in the last hour, but I'll repeat myself. Um, he said that is the moral result of realizing a self-evident biological fact. Men are expendable. Women and children are not. A tribe or a nation can lose a high percentage of its men and still pick up the pieces and go on as long as the women and children are saved. During the break here, I'll look up. Um, I forget, but it's, it's outrageous. Like the, the percentage of men who were killed in different countries after or during World War II. Remarkable. Like, I don't even want to ballpark it because I'm off, but like a lot, like, like, especially in the Soviet Union. Like, like I want to say something like, like 50% of the men were killed or something. But as long as the women and children are saved, then uh, you can go on. He says, if you fail to save women and children, you've had it, you're done, you're through. He says, possibly extinction is the way we are headed. Great nations have died in the past. It can happen to us. But I'm not certain how good our chances are. To me, it seems self-evident that any nation that loses its patriotic fervor is on the skids. Without that indispensable survival factor, the end is only a matter of time. I don't know how deeply the rot has penetrated. But it seems to me that there has been a change for the worse in the last 50 years. Now, perhaps I'm misled by the offensive behavior of a noisy but unimportant minority. But it does seem to me that patriotism has lost its grip on a large percentage of our people. I hope I'm wrong. Because if my fears are well-grounded, I would not bet two cents on this nation's chance of lasting even to the end of the century. And here's the thing. There's no way to force patriotism on anyone. Passing a law does not create it. Nor can we buy it with billions of dollars. But fellow cadets, what you have here is a tradition of service. Your most important classroom is Memorial Hall. Your most important lesson is the way you feel inside when you walk up those steps and see that shot-torn flag framed in the arch of the door. Don't give up the ship. If you feel nothing, you don't belong here. But if it gives you goose flesh, 
just to see that old battle flag. Then you're going to find that feeling increasing every time you return here over the years until it reaches a crescendo. The day you return and read the list of your own honored dead classmates, shipmates, friends. Read them with grief and pride while you try and keep your tears silent. He ends with this. He says, I said that patriotism is a way of saying women and children first. And that no one can force a man to feel this way. Instead, he must embrace it freely. Now, while no man can force a man to feel patriotic, you can create a culture where you're not supposed to feel it. I want to take a break here. I'll share one final story from his speech. Um, and this, the next, so that, that first part of the speech was for the cadets, really, uh, for people in uniform. And I share it here for people in uniform. So you get it. I don't want you to ever feel discouraged, uh, or like you shouldn't, uh, be patriotic or you're not supposed to. That's all that, that, that was meant to be. Uh, but coming up next, I also want to share it to, to everyone who's never worn a uniform and say, uh, you still have opportunities to exhibit the highest level of moral behavior. You still have opportunities to serve others in profound ways. You still have opportunities to not only be patriotic or to feel patriotic, but to be patriotic in every sense of the word. We can't be ashamed of it. Not only, again, not only is it something that we, uh, that's, that's, um, we shouldn't be ashamed of. It's something we should aspire to. It doesn't mean you're a jingoistic pig. It doesn't mean you want to go rule the world to be patriotic. It's something so much more than that. Don't let anyone else redefine it. one 888 I'll wrap it up next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, because I just want to talk about the VA next. A um, couple days ago, I talked to the Phoenix VA whistleblower and uh, learned some just incredible things. Like, can I share this one thing? I can't even wait till next segment. Um, wait time. So what's the date today? October 31st. So if you're a veteran and you go to the VA and you need an appointment, and they say, okay, the next appointment that we have is December uh, December 10th. And you say, uh, gosh, I got uh, my little boy's uh, t-ball game on the 10th. Can we do it for the 14th instead? And they say, oh, perfect. We'll do it on the 14th. What is that veteran's wait time? They they book they make the they make the appointment today, the thirty first of October, and they schedule it for December fourteenth. What's that veteran's wait time? You would say how many days are in November? Thirty. So thirty plus fourteen, forty four days plus today, whatever, right? Forty four, forty four, forty five days. Nope, four. The VA counts wait. The wait time 
from the first available appointment to the appointment you make. So they say if your first appointment is available on the 10th, but you schedule it for the 14th, that's a four-day wait. They don't count the time from now to the first available appointment. And you're thinking, what, how is that possible? And that's what I said. I said, you're lying. <laughs> I said, you're lying to me. What are you talking about? He said, I guarantee you that. I promise you. That's how, that's how we account for wait times. So it's not the actual wait time. It's a totally made up number, basically, or metric. Isn't that wild? I'll explain, we'll explain more of that coming up in, in the next segment. It's the craziest, craziest thing. But I want to wrap up this chat about patriotism. So Robert Heinlein, one of the greatest science fiction writers ever, uh, went to the Naval Academy, went back in 1973 to give a speech about patriotism. Um, and basically the point is that patriotism, patriotism is not something that's uh, to be ashamed of. It's something to aspire to if we have a full definition, a full proper definition of what patriotism is. So Heinlein says um, – I said that patriotism is a way of saying women and children first and that no one can force a man to feel this way. Instead, he must embrace it freely. I want to tell about one such man. He wore no uniform and no one knows his name or where he came from. All we know is what he did. In my hometown 60 years ago when I was a child, my mother and father used to take me and my brothers and sisters to a park on Sunday afternoons. It was a wonderful place for kids with picnic grounds and lakes and a zoo. But a railroad line cut straight through it. One Sunday afternoon, a young married couple were crossing the tracks. She apparently did not watch her step. For she managed to catch her foot in a frog of a switch to a uh, siding and could not pull it free. Her husband stopped to help her, but try as they might, they could not get her foot loose. And while they were working at it, a homeless man showed up, walking the ties. He joined the husband in trying to pull the young woman's foot loose. No luck. Out of sight around the curve, a train whistled. Perhaps there would have been time to run and flag it down. Perhaps not. In any case, both men went right ahead trying to pull her free. And the train hit them. The wife was killed. The husband was mortally injured and died later. And the homeless person was killed. And testimony showed that neither man made the slightest effort to save himself. Now, the husband's behavior was heroic, but it's what we would expect of a husband towards his wife, his right and his proud privilege to die for his woman. But what of the nameless stranger? Up to the very last second, he could have jumped clear. He did not. He was still trying to save this woman he had never seen before in his life, right up to the very instant the train killed him. And that's all we'll ever know about him. This is how a man dies. This is how a man lives. I got two minutes. I got a bunch of other stories that I can share of that happening today. Right now. Um, really quick, there's one where it is in, um, gosh, what city? Was it Philly? I forget. Philly. Man saw a guy run down the street with a knife after a woman in a baby stroller. He got involved. The woman tried to run and jump into a bus, but the bus didn't, wasn't fully stopped. The doors weren't open. So the man got between. The, knife, uh, the guy with the knife stabbed him, killed him, and that delay caused the woman to get on the bus, and the bus drove away, saving her and the baby's life. So the story, that was just a couple weeks ago. Stories like that all the time. And we can relate this to so many things in our life. And I don't mean like, you know, go save a woman in front of a runaway train. Uh, 
how are you metaphorically giving your life for women and children? How are you recognizing that you are expendable? You as a man are expendable, but women and children are not. There's a reason that the term exists, women and children first. Right? Like why why isn't the term able-bodied men first? Right. The sick, the sink is uh, shipping. Get the uh, sorry. the ship is sinking. Get the strongest men off now. Right. Then you would think almost that would be what you would want to do, right? We need these strong men. Get the strong men off first. No, they're expendable. Now, no, don't think like, well, if we're expendable, that means we're not needed. No, 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 no. Expendable and essential. So, how are you giving your life up? A for your family. And B, for people you don't even know, that is the highest moral achievement. And we have the ability to achieve it daily. That is true patriotism. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on The Blaze Radio Network. The next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. Thank you for being here, Slater Radio, on uh, Twitter. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Tonight, maybe tomorrow, we're going to release a uh, a new video uh, that we made. Mm, Don't really want to give it away. I haven't told anyone about the video yet, so I don't know how to pitch it without giving it all away. Um, I guess I can say this because it's still worth watching. Uh, a, A high schooler diagnosed with brain cancer, uh, lost all of his hair, and the football team that he was on, they all shaved their heads in solidarity of uh, for their teammate to fight alongside him uh, in his uh, battle against this brain cancer. And uh, we were there when they uh, took off their helmets around Bryson uh, for the first time. Really, really cool moment. So it'll make you cry. So we're going to release that video uh, tonight or tomorrow. You can just just like the Mike Slater show on Facebook. It'll pop up on your newsfeed whenever we uh, put it up there. Um, do, 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 do. Let's play this clip here of uh, Hillary Clinton on Rachel Maddow. Let me say this real quick about Maddow. Maddow, as far left progressive as they come, not a hack. Really smart. I disagree with her on everything ever. Uh, but really smart. She would have hosted a or moderated a much better debate than the hacks of CNBC. Big difference between asking thoughtful, provoking, challenging, difficult questions, even adversarial questions, versus being a hack, which is what we got two hours of the other day. Anyway, uh, this is Hillary on Rachel Maddow. One policy question that I think um, the Republicans are raising, they're talking about amongst themselves, hasn't really burst into a general election conversation yet, but I am genuinely shocked by it, Um, which is that it's becoming sort of fashionable in Republican circles to talk about abolishing the VA, uh, privatizing the VA, getting rid of it, uh, throwing veterans onto the mercies of the for-profit health care system. The reason they are able to propose something that radical is because the problems at the VA seem so intractable. Mm. If I had been running a Republican campaign against President Obama last year, I would have run it entirely on the VA. Mm. A bureaucracy, a bloated big government program that can't be fixed and let's do right by our veterans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you 
Do you have any new ideas for trying to fix it? I mean, every, there, you can't find a person in politics who doesn't say we shouldn't do right by our veterans. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, this can't get fixed fast enough. Yeah, and I don't understand that. Uh, you know, I don't understand why we have such a problem because there have been a number of surveys of veterans. And overall, veterans who do get treated are satisfied with their treatment. Much now, more so than people much, in the regular system. Uh, it's yes. exactly right. right. Now, nobody would believe that from the coverage that uh, you see uh, and the constant uh, berating of the VA that comes from the Republicans in, in part in pursuit of this ideological agenda that but in part what's 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 our ideological agenda what could possibly be the ideological agenda with us what are you talking about like i i her whole so frustrating you are supposed to forget that more than 120,000 veterans were put on non-existent wait lists non-existent not secret wait list the secret wait list implies that it's there but no one knows about it. this is a non-existent wait list did not exist put there until they died we're supposed to forget about thomas breen 71 years old went to the va was told to go home they said we'll call you he went home things got worse started bleeding when he would go to the bathroom but thomas was so proud of his military service he refused to go anywhere except the va they took him to the va emergency room he was told to go home and wait we'll call you Every single day, every day, his kids would call the VA. Every day. This was September 28th last year. He died November 30th. The VA called his daughter on December 6th and said, we now have time to see your father. She said, you're a little too late, sweetheart. His daughter said at the end is when he suffered. He screamed. He cried. And that's something I'd never seen him do before, cry, never. He cried in the kitchen right here, don't let me die. Why is this happening to me? Why won't anybody help me? Things are fine, though. Things are fine. We're supposed to forget that still today, a third of veterans on the wait list have died. They're dead. A third, third of them are currently on wait list are dead. You're supposed to ignore the fact that even today, a year plus after the scandal has been revealed, that wait times are worse. And you know the excuse? The excuse is that wait times are worse because the VA isn't lying about them as much as they were before. And then the other day, I talked to the whistleblower from the VA in Phoenix, the whistleblower. And let me just share this one story again. I'll try to articulate this clear. I, I, it's so... It doesn't matter how clearly I articulate it. Like, it will never make sense in your brain. So no matter how I explain this, it won't make sense. But he says, if you go to the VA today, you walk in and you say, I needed an appointment. And they say, okay, we'll see you on December. Or we have an opening on December 10th. And you say, gosh, I can't make it on the 10th. Uh, do you have another day available? And they say, yeah, the 14th. And you say, perfect, the 14th. Let's do it, December 14th. Any rational person would look at that and say that that is a 44-day wait list. 30 days in November, 14 days until the appointment. That's 44-day wait. But the VA counts that as a four-day wait. They count the wait list or the wait time from the first available appointment to your actual appointment. That's what they say the wait time is. So whenever you hear someone under oath at a, v at a uh, congressional hearing talk about wait times, it's not a real... Th I don't even know how to explain it. Like it's, that's not real life. That's... Like it's a totally made up metric. They're not including the weight. Like it's, ugh, I don't even know how to explain it. You know, you, you get what I'm saying though. 
they made up a new definition. That's what, They made up a de- new definition of wait time. And the wait time is from the first available appointment to the actual appointment, not from the day you make the appointment to the day you see a doctor. It's crazy. There's absolutely no accountability whatsoever. And you know why they do all this? They do all this because it's a broken, it's a bureaucracy, right? Everyone knows it's a bureaucracy. Everyone knows that incentives are screwed up in a bureaucracy. So they had to add incentives. They had to, they they said, wow, wait times are, are forever. We need to, let's add an incentive. Let's incentivize the people at the VA to do a better job for patients by saying, hey guys, if you decrease wait times, we're going to give you more money. But instead of actually decreasing wait times, they just put people on non-existent wait lists till they died. They didn't actually treat people quicker. They didn't treat people better. They manipulated, they lied, they deceived so that they could pocket more money. That is a broken bureaucracy. Hillary Clinton's like, what? I don't even know. People love it. And here's the most frustrating thing of all. This is the thing that's so discouraging. This is an issue, the VA, that everyone on all sides of the political aisle hate what's going on, and we still can't fix it. This is something everyone agrees on, everyone, Bernie Sanders to Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, whatever, and it doesn't matter, the, the entire political gamut. Socialists to your most ardent free market capital, right? Everyone agrees that it's broken. Everyone agrees that it's important. Everyone agrees, everyone can understand it. It's not complicated. It's not, it's not, like, uh, it's not like we're talking about the Export-Import Bank or something like that. that people are like, what? Or the Federal Reserve? This is something everyone understands. And we still can't fix it. And if this is something that we all agree on, we all want to fix, and we all understand, and this can't get fixed, how is anything ever going to get fixed in D.C.? Right? How is anything that people disagree on going to get fixed? How is anything that people may not fully understand ever going to get fixed? If this can't get fixed, nothing can get fixed. And my argument is that the VA can't be fixed it's impossible the incentives again they're too messed up incentives don't work in government land they don't they work in the real world but they don't work in government land because they it's not based on reality again if the incentive was to if you decrease wait times we'll give you more money and they did they decreased wait times but the incentive wasn't did you actually serve the patients better big difference And the only reason that the VA has worked as long as it has, or as well as it has, is because there's so many good people who work there for the right reasons. But a bureaucracy can only hang on for so long on the goodness of your heart, because the brain-dead bureaucracy will eventually win. one 888 900 one 888 on Twitter. What a it's it's so it's so discouraging that we can't fix uh this one. And it's such a simple fix too. Um 
this VA whistleblower we were talking to, he talked about the Choice Act. And it's simple. You give every patient, every VA patient, um, the option, a voucher, to go and go wherever they want. It's like, why, why would you not give a veteran that option? Just give it, basically, it's a PPO plan. They can go wherever they want, out of network, and get treatment for whatever they're, whatever they need. Like, why is that so difficult? And what that would do is that would create a little bit of competition. The VA doesn't need to change their incentive program. By the way, the VA knows now, they've at least recognized that the incentive screwed things up so badly um, that they've gotten rid of the incentive to uh, decrease wait times. But um, the VA doesn't need new incentives. They need competition. And this whistleblower said, if we instill a little bit of competition in the system, by a veteran having a choice, go to the VA or go somewhere else. He said, then maybe they'll hire people or people will change their attitudes so that when I walk into a VA, they'll smile at me as opposed to treating me like just a number. And speaking of numbers, I asked this whistleblower, I said, is it true that 22 veterans a die, uh, 22 veterans commit suicide every single day? Is it true that 22 veterans commit suicide every single day? And he said, no, 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 no. That's, that's a, that's a myth. And I said, oh, man, I felt, I felt really bad. I said, gosh, I've been, I've been spreading that myth for a long time. I've been saying for like a year or so that 22 veterans die every, every, month, every day. 22, 22 veterans commit suicide every day is what I've been saying. And this guy who specializes, this whistleblower, he specializes in uh, suicidal veterans. Um, he said, no, that's a myth. And I was like, oh, jeez. I said, all right, well, what's the, what's the real number? And I'll have to correct the record. And he said, well, that number put out by the VA – it doesn't include veterans from California, Texas, or some other big state. And uh, it doesn't include numbers of veterans who are uh, suicide by cop. And there's some other metric that it doesn't include. And I said, oh, so, so it's worse than 22 a day. And he said, yeah, 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 worse than 20, like more, like more than 20. I thought he was going to come back and be like, no, 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 it's not 22 a day. It's four, it's, it's three a day or 22 a week or 22 a month or something. He came, he's like, no, 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 no. It's way more than 22 a day. They don't include veterans from California and Texas, the two most populous states. I don't know if it's one and two or one and three or I think it's one and two. Maybe New York's in there. I don't know. But whatever. Two of the most populous states. Don't include them. Don't include veterans from those states. Amazing. 22 a day. More than 22 a day. one 888 Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Glamour Magazine has named Caitlyn Jenner Woman of the Year. <laughs> would you not think that the feminists would be going crazy over that? Like, men control the world. Men run everything. And men think that they're better at being a woman than women are, a man is a man is better at being a woman than all the other women. Is that what that is? <laughs> That's what that is. It's crazy. So, not going to talk any more about Caitlyn Jenner because I don't care. But may I propose a, a different person? Excuse me, woman of the year. So how binary of me? 
Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, I think it's a, a bad sign for our country that Elizabeth Holmes is not a household name. Yet still, people can name all of the real housewives. Elizabeth Holmes dropped out of Stanford. She spent the next 10 years developing an easier way. I'm just going to, I'm not even going to tell you, 10 years. Imagine spending 10 years solely dedicated to a, a single goal. She spent 10 years developing an easier way to test blood. She has, is deathly afraid of needles, and she figured out that that's a major reason why people don't get certain tests is that they don't want their blood drawn because of the needles. She says this is a system that was developed in the 60s. It's archaic. It's old. It's painful. It's slow. So she started her own company, and with a prick of a finger, one drop of blood can be used for 30 different tests, and you get the results in less than four hours. And she's partnered with Walgreens, and the goal is to launch this uh, screening in all 8,200 Walgreens across the country. And the test is $30. The, the 30 tests that they currently run right now, if you did them individually, you'd have to draw your blood, and it would cost over $1,000. And now you can do it all for 30 Her company is worth $9 billion, and she owns half of it. And she's 30 She's 30 years old. So who should be woman of the year? Elizabeth Holmes or Bruce Jenner with a boob job? And I really don't mean to be crass. I, I, I genuinely mean that. Who is a better woman? Or who's one that you would rather have your daughter look up to? 1-888-900-3393. Slater Radio on the Tweet Machine. Come back. We'll chat a little bit about the, uh, about the debate. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. I got only one more hour left. I hate we only get three hours uh, a week um, together. I want to chat a little bit about the debate. When we come back, I want to play some clips of, well, as you've heard enough analysis about the debate. I agree with all of it. Um, so I want to chat about some things that I haven't heard anyone else uh, talk about. Uh, I want to play a clip of Ted Cruz talking about the gender pay gap and also Ben Carson and the question about Costco and gay marriage and all the rest. I want to do that coming up next. But um, in general, uh, the first few questions could not have been more frustrating. The moderator, I talked about this on Lou Dobbs yesterday um, because Lou Dobbs last night talked about, he asked me about the uh, Senate budget deal that was passed at 3 a.m. the other day. And I said, yeah, Lou, the, if you go back to the debate, the moderators, out of the blue, have rediscovered their fetish with the deficit. Suddenly, they've, they've, re- they've discovered, once again, they've found within themselves their, their concern for the deficit. Now, they haven't cared about it the last seven years. And, of course, the deficit went up under Bush, too, and Obama. 
I haven't cared about it, though, until now. And they just would not stop grilling. The moderators would not stop grilling the, the, the candidates about the deficit. And then, just, just to prove how ridiculous the whole thing is, in the morning of the debate, the House passed this bill that increases the deficit. They didn't care. But then the, the, that afternoon, a couple hours later, they grill the candidates on their tax plans because they say it will increase the deficit. They didn't care about the bill that does increase the deficit that was passed a couple hours earlier. They only care about the deficit, about these hypothetical tax plans that the candidates have proposed. How ridiculous. And not only has no one cared about the deficit the last seven years, these same people, these moderators and others, have argued that we need to raise the deficit. Raising the deficit is good for the economy. But now when you're talking to the Republicans, raising the deficit is the worst thing that anyone can do. It's bondage for, to, the, uh, to the younger generation. Unbelievable. Anyway, the Senate plan passed at 3 a.m., same thing. Adds to the deficit and no one cares. But when it's a Republican debate, that's the only thing that matters. Here's my main point about this, this fetish with the deficit. It is a two-fold solution, and the Republicans kind of missed this um, in their discussion. The deficit, is, it's twofold. It's cutting taxes and cutting spending. It has to be both. Let me define a term here real quick, the deficit. When you get a paycheck of $1,000 a month, but your pay, your expenses are $1,500. That's a deficit of $500. The debt is $500 every month added on top of each other. That's your debt. It's all, it's the, all the deficits combined. When the federal government brings in $3 trillion in taxes, but spends $3.5 trillion, that's a deficit of $500 billion. Now, the moderators attacked the different tax plans. And they say, Ben Carson, your tax plan only brings in $1.5 trillion in revenue, and that's going to increase the deficit. And all the candidates took the bait. And they all started f- uh, throwing out ways that they're going to actually bring in more revenue. Right? And Carson said, well, you know, what we're also going to do is tax businesses. And then another candidate said, well, you know, what we're going to do is we're also going to have a capital gains tax. And they're talking about all these different ways that they're going to take money from people. And I'm thinking, don't fall for it. You guys are missing this opportunity. What you should have said, and what, I don't want to say it like that. What I would have said is, yeah, you're right. My income tax plan will bring in $2 trillion in government revenue. You totally got that right. But you know what we're also going to do? We're going to cut government spending down to $2 trillion. So you say that if we only bring in $2 trillion in revenue, that we're going to increase the deficit. That's only true if we keep spending $3.5 trillion. But I have no intention of spending $3.5 trillion. We're going to cut it down to $2 trillion. Now, before you go freaking out talking about how we're going to throw grandma off the cliff, think back to 1995. It was only 20 years ago. 20 years ago, the federal budget was $1.2 trillion. You adjust for inflation, it's about $2 trillion. How were you doing in 1995? Was grandma thrown off the cliff in 1995? Were things so desperate financially in 1995? Was the federal government so small that it couldn't function in 1995? Of course not. Things were fine. I want to get the government back to the size, not in 1795, 1995. 
You're going to call me evil? You're going to call me a hate monger? You're going to say, I hate old people? I hate young people? I hate poor people? I just want to get back to the government that it was in 1995. And everyone can keep more of their own money, and we can cut the deficit just the same. Is that asking too much? It is a two-fold solution. Cut taxes and cut spending. And if you do both those things, then no one should be talking about deficits ever again. Sorry, I got a little angry there. I just got frustrated at this. And it's frustrating because none of the Republicans got it. They were all like, well, but we're also going to tax businesses. Like, no. Should be saying, well, we're also going to cut spending. You know, there's no constitutional rule that says we have to spend more money every year than the year before. There's no conservative rule that says we need to find new ways to take money from people just to keep up with how much money we spent the year before. I mean, it's just so easy to spend less money. And Kasich, in particular, is so wrong on this issue. He says you can't run the government on a 10% tax rate. And he's right in one sense. He's right in one sense. You can't run this government on a 10% tax rate. You can't run this government. But you, the goal is to make a government that can operate on a 10% tax rate. And you, Kasich, as a conservative, quotes, should be fighting to make government that is only as big as a 10% tax rate could afford. Listen, I know, and we don't, we don't talk about this kind of stuff on the show that often, but I know no one likes talking about debt and deficit and all that stuff. It's boring. So I'm going to, I'm not even going to talk about how we are just going to be in so much trouble when the interest rates go up. I mean, the interest, I'm not, I'm not even going to go any more detail. Just know that if you had a credit card bill, credit card debt, and the interest rate is 1%, not that big of a deal. It doesn't take up that much of your income. But if your credit card interest rate goes up to 10% or 20% or 30% or 50%, then that debt is going to take over a lot more of your life. And if your credit card company came to you every year and said that your interest rates are going to go up, first of all, everyone would freak out. And you would also sure wish that you paid off that debt before those interest rates got it, went up. You'd sure wish that you paid off that debt when those interest rates were so low. And that same thing's going to happen in our country. We're adding to our deficit, our debt, when the interest rates are low. We should be eliminating it so that when the interest rates go up, we're not going to be slammed by it. And it's not going to take up half of our budget. So I know this is getting wonky. This is getting boring. The point is. The conservative movement should not be full of people who are finding the most creative ways to take the most amount of money from the most amount of people. The argument should be about how to simplify the tax code. I like Carly talking about a three-page tax code, even though the ladies on The View were mocking three-page tax code as if, like, I don't, I don't get that. Like, what, what do you want? You want a 76,000-page tax code? Like, you much prefer that? Why would you mock that? Not to mention they mocked her face as well, which is ridiculous, a lot hypocritical, as they criticize Donald Trump for doing the same thing. But anyway, the argument should be how to make a simplified tax code where everyone has skin in the game and cutting a spending so everyone gets to keep more of their skin. So anyway, when you hear someone suddenly care about deficits, it's good to say, hey, welcome to the party. I'm glad you care about deficits. But the best way to cut the deficit is to cut the spending because that's the same thing you would do in your home. And I just wish the candidates chatted more about that. Uh, did a little better job making that point the other day. Um, come back with Ted Cruz and Ben Carson. They had some uh, good answers on uh, to their questions on gay marriage and the gender pay gap.
play those coming up next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. All right, this will wrap up our debate uh, recap here. Talked about a lot of other things, including earlier today, talking about how bacon, uh, that whole bacon story, processed meat story, is uh, just total garbage. <laughs> based off, it's just, The only reason it was possible is because the media loves sensational stories that scare you and the American people are bad at math. And speaking of bad at math, here is a, a question that was given to Ted Cruz about the gender pay gap. Here it is. Senator Cruz, uh, working women in this country still earn just 77% of what men earn. And I know that you've said you've been very sympathetic to our cause. Um, but you've also said that the de- Democrats' moves to try and change this are political show votes. Uh, I just wonder what you would do as president to try and help in this cause. Well, we've got to turn the economy around for people who are struggling. The Democrats' answer to everything is more government control over wages and more empowering trial lawyers to file lawsuits. You know, you look at working women. I'll tell you, in my family, there are a lot of single moms in my family. My sister was a single mom. Both my aunts were single moms. My mom, who's here today, was a single mom when my father left us when I was three years old. Now, thank God, my father was invited to a Bible study and became born again, and he came back to my mom and me, and we were raised together. But the struggle of single moms is extraordinary. And, you know... When you see Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and all the Democrats talking about wanting to address the plight of working women, not a one of them mentioned the fact that under Barack Obama, 3.7 million women have entered poverty. Not a one of them mentioned the fact that under Barack Obama and the big government economy, the median wage for women has dropped $733. The truth of the matter is big government benefits the wealthy, it benefits the lobbyists, it benefits the the giant corporations, and the people who are getting hammered are small businesses, it's single moms, it's Hispanics. That is who I'm fighting for, the people that Washington leaves behind. All right, so good good answer, really good answer. And then the end, uh, great job at uh, talking about what we always say on this show, conservatives fight for the most vulnerable, and he just laid that out very nicely. Um, But my response to that would have been, uh, that's not true, lady. What's her name? Becky. Becky Quick. Becky, it's not true uh, that m- women make 77 cents on the dollar. It's a lie. It's not true. Um, so I can't answer your question because the premise is false. And I, I just can't stress this enough. We do this on the show all the time, so I won't go into the whole thing. But women do not earn less than men apples to apples. When you account for the profession, the education level, the job experience, the time of the, the location, the... Um, Time taken off from work for raising kids, et cetera, et cetera. Women earn just as much as men. In fact, unmarried young women, under 35, young women, unmarried young women without kids earn $1.15 for every dollar that an unmarried young man without kids makes in San Diego. So in San Diego, take an, so uh, unmarried without kids. So my wife, three years ago. 
they earn a dollar fifteen. Those women earn a dollar fifteen for every dollar that uh, an equivalent man made in San Diego. So there's a gender pay gap right there. The entire premise is based off a lie. It's just not true. Don't let people get away with this. There is no gender pay gap. No gender does not exist. Okay. Keep all that in mind. I want to come back to that. Right now, I want to play this question that was given to uh, Ben Carson. Oh, you just have the answer? That's fine. The question was... um, uh, ben, you were uh, on the uh, board at Costco, and Costco was named by some magazine as being the most gay-friendly place to work. Uh, what what does that say about your views of marriage and homosexuality that you would be on that board? Something like that. Uh, I believe that our Constitution protects everybody, regardless of their sexual orientation or any other aspect. I also believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. And that there is no reason that you can't uh, be perfectly fair to the gay community. They shouldn't automatically assume that because you believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, that you are a homophobe. And this is one of the myths that the left perpetrates on our society. And this is how they frighten people and get people to shut up. You know, that's what the PC culture is all about, and it's destroying this nation. The fact of the matter is, we, the American people, are not each other's enemies. It's those people who are trying to divide us who are the enemies, and we need to make that very clear to everybody. It's a great line. We are not each other's enemies. It's the people trying to divide us who are our enemies. That's That's the premise behind the women make 77 cents on the dollar question. That's the premise behind the gender pay gap question, trying to divide us. In that case, uh, men and women dividing us. And also, if you make gender pay gap in the war on women a big thing, well, then it's more likely that you're, of course, going to vote for a woman, Hillary Clinton. But anyway, the point is, it's about dividing us. The abortion issue tries to divide men and women. Men, you're not allowed to be in in this conversation at all. Men aren't even allowed to have a say. Don't let people... Divide us. Oh, and the third question, the Ben Carson question, um, dividing straight, uh, making a division between straight people and gay people. Like Ben Carson, you're on a board of a company that I don't even know, like uh, like hires a lot of gay people. Like how is that possible? And Ben Carson's like, what are you, like what? You, you can believe in traditional marriage and the Constitution at the same time. You can you can be a Christian and love people at the same time. Believe it or not. There's no need to divide us because there's no division there. You're the ones making it. Don't let people divide us. And the craziest thing is the people who talk the most about unity are the people who live and die for this division. They're the great dividers. The people who talk the most about unity ask questions to Ben Carson for the sole purpose of creating a rift between him or Republicans and gay people. And Ben Carson says, whoa, no such rift exists. And the left creates division where, there is, where it doesn't exist to make conservatives look intolerant. The Democrats depend, their entire brand is on being the party of tolerance and love. In order to do that, they need to make conservatives look like the people of intolerance and hate. And we have this culture today where it's all, you know, everything's great and everyone's amazing. Just love each other and blah, blah, blah. So 
people are more inclined to go on the Democratic side just because, well, I'm a good person. So they go with the part. They're like, of course, I'm going to be a Democrat because they're the people who are all about tolerance and love. They have to make that division stronger. And they do that by asking questions like this, which make it look like conservatives are the people of intolerance and hate. Now, two days ago, I met a woman. Her name's Trinity. She was a heroin addict, uh, homeless, became pregnant on her way to get an abortion. And on the way there, she got a call from one of my favorite charities called Solutions for Change that says, we have a place for you. And she's gone through a thousand day university program, Solutions University program, teaching her job skills and parenting skills and all the rest. And now she's thriving in life. She went to school. She went to college. She went to, um, she has a job now. That is the epitome of tolerance and love. Tolerance doesn't even begin actually to describe that. That's not tolerance. Tolerance is nothing even to strive for. That's the epitome of acceptance solutions for change. What they did, it's, it's run by a conservative. It's run by a Christian. They took in this drug addict mom who's going to have an abortion, high school dropout, never worked a day in her life and taught her the skills necessary to be an amazing woman, an amazing mom, an amazing productive member of society. That is the epitome of acceptance. That is the epitome of forgiveness. That is the epitome of love. Helping our neighbors turn their lives around. So to to try and characterize conservatives as people of intolerance and hate, well, that's their main purpose. All to make themselves look good. Don't let them have it. Don't let them have it. Slater Radio on uh, Twitter. 1-888-933-93. We only got a half an hour left. We'll wrap the show up coming up next. Mike Slater Show on The Blaze. Radio Network, spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Eight eight nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusader. So I posted this the other day, and uh, I just want to see if people thought of it. And here are some comments. Uh, spot on. I tell my kids that their friends' grass may seem greener, but greener, but that's because it's artificial turf. Uh, parts of this are spot on, but never felt though I was special or better than anyone else. Born in eighty three. Um. Can't tell tell you how many people have sought my counsel or are unhappy because their expectations aren't met. Uh, try hiring people with this mentality. I was born in '87. I employ two people currently who all work really hard. I interviewed and tried to hire for a third position that paid well and has benefits. It took me six months to find the right candidate. Uh, finally, he starts next week. So I, I want to read this. I know I'm, this is the second thing I've read in three hours, and you're not supposed to read on the radio, but I think this is so good, and I think it's absolutely spot on. And obviously, it doesn't apply to everyone, but I think it's. Um, I think it's a lot uh, of people. So the question is, why are younger people, and by younger they mean 35 and under, unhappy? Why are people at 35 and younger unhappy? Uh, and I, I fit in this generation. I'm 31. So I, I, really, I really think there's something to this. So uh, if I may, say hi to Lucy. 
Lucy is a part of Generation Y. This is the generation born between the late 1970s and the mid-1990s. She's also part of a yuppie culture that makes up a large portion of Gen Y. I have a term for yuppies in the Gen Y age group. I call them Gen Y protagonists and special yuppies or gypsies. G-Y-P-S-Y. Gen Y protagonists and special yuppies. A gypsy is a unique brand of yuppie, one who thinks they are the main character in a very special story. So Lucy's enjoying her gypsy life, and she's very pleased to be Lucy. The only issue is that uh, Lucy's kind of unhappy. Now, to get to the bottom of why, we need to define what makes someone happy or unhappy in the first place. And it comes down to a simple formula. Happiness equals reality minus expectations. Happiness is reality minus expectations. It's pretty straightforward. When the reality of someone's life is better than they had expected, they're happy. When reality turns out to be worse than they expected, they're unhappy. So to provide some context, let's start by bringing Lucy's parents into the discussion. Lucy's parents are born in the 50s. They're baby boomers. And they were raised by Lucy's grandparents, the greatest generation who grew up during the Great Depression and fought in World War II. Definitely not gypsies. Lucy's Depression-era grandparents were obsessed with economic security and raised her parents, the baby boomer generation, to build practical, secure careers. They wanted her parents' careers to have greener grass than their own. And Lucy's parents were brought up to envision a prosperous and stable career for themselves. Something like this. And there's a picture of a lush, green lawn. Right? That's what the, the greatest generation raised their kids, the baby boomers, to want a lush, green lawn. Stable careers. They were taught that th- there was nothing stopping them from getting a lush green lawn of a career, but they needed to put in years of hard work to make it happen. Uh, let me skip ahead here. Uh, there we go. After graduating from being insufferable uh, hippies, Lucy's parents embarked on their careers. As the 70s, 80s, and 90s rolled along, the world entered a time of unprecedented economic prosperity. Lucy's parents did even better than they expected to. That left them feeling gratified and optimistic. Now, with a smoother, more positive life experience than that of their own parents in the greatest generation, Lucy's parents raised Lucy, gypsies today, with a sense of optimism and unbounded possibility. And they weren't alone. Baby boomers all around the country told their Gen Y kids that they could be whatever they wanted to be instilling the special protagonist identity deep within their psyches. This left gypsies feeling tremendously hopeful about their careers to a point where their parents' goal of a, of a green lawn, of secure prosperity, that didn't do it for them. A gypsy-worthy lawn has flowers. This leads us to the first fact about gypsies. Gypsies are wildly ambitious. And there's a picture of a stick figure that says, I suppose I could be president, but is politics really the truest calling of my heart? No. No, that would be settling. A gypsy needs a lot more from a career than a nice green lawn of prosperity and security. The fact is, a green lawn isn't quite exceptional or unique enough for a gypsy. 
where the baby boomers wanted to live the American dream, gypsies want to live their own personal dream. To be clear, gypsies want economic prosperity just like their parents did, but they also want to be fulfilled by their career in a way that their parents didn't think about. But something else is happening too. All right, so we're good, we're good so far, right? We see the context. We see um, that, that the Gen Y, these kids want more. They want to be personally fulfilled. They don't just want stability. They want personal fulfillment. All good. But something else is happening too. While the career goals of Gen Y have become much more particular and ambitious, Lucy has been given a second message throughout her childhood as well. You are special. You are special. Now, this would probably be a good time to bring in our second fact about gypsies. Gypsies, we already said, are ambitious, all good, but gypsies are also delusional. Sure, Lucy thought. Everyone will go and get themselves some fulfilling career, but I am unusually wonderful. And as such, my career and life path will stand out amongst the crowd. So on top of this generation as a whole having a bold goal for a flowery career lawn, each individual gypsy thinks that he or she is destined for something even better, a shiny unicorn on top of the flowery lawn. So why is this delusional? Because this is what all gypsies think, which defies the definition of special. Special means better, greater, or otherwise different from what is usual. So according to this definition, most people are not special. Otherwise, special wouldn't mean anything. And even right now, the gypsies who are reading this are thinking, good point. But I actually am one of the few special ones. And that's the problem. A second gypsy delusion comes into play when the gypsy enters the job market. While Lucy's parents' expectation was that many years of hard work would eventually lead to a great career, Lucy considers a great career an obvious given for someone as exceptional as she. And it's just a matter of time. And her workforce expectations look something like this. And there's a graph, and the graph for the greatest generation is, uh, is a slow-growing little line graph uh, for the for the. Uh, uh, baby boomers, a little, a little quicker, but you know, it's still 10 years, 10, 15, 20 years before the career gets to the lush green lawn. But for the the gypsies, it, is, it rockets, explodes right to the stratosphere, and then instantly, within a year or two, it's not only lush green lawn, it's not only have flowers on it, but beautiful unicorns on it as well. Success instantly beyond anyone's expectations. Wildest expectations, except for theirs. Unfortunately, the funny thing about the world is that it turns out not to be that easy of a place and the weird thing about careers is that they're actually quite hard. Great careers take years of blood, sweat, and tears to build. And even the most successful people are rarely doing anything great in their mid or early 30s, earlier mid 30s. But gypsies aren't about to accept that. Paul Harvey, University of New Hampshire professor, has researched this, finding that Generation Y has, quote, unrealistic expectations. I just want to make this point. This isn't just some guy saying this. This isn't just me articulating. This is uh, research behind this now, too. So Generation Y has, quote, unrealistic expectations and a strong resistance towards accepting negative feedback. And they have an inflated view of oneself. He says that, quote, a great source of frustration for people with a strong sense of entitlement is unmet expectations. They often feel entitled to a level of respect and rewards that aren't in line with their actual ability and effort levels. 
And so they might not get the level of respect and rewards that they are expecting. And that's because the real world has the nerve to consider merit a factor. So this is what you end up getting. You end up getting um, expectations are super high, but reality is where it should be. The difference between reality and expectations, like expectations super high, reality where it should be, down low, that difference is frustration and disappointment. That difference is unhappiness. Now, gets worse than that. On top of all this, gypsies have an extra problem that applies to their whole generation. Gypsies are taunted. Sure, some people from Lucy's parents, the uh, baby boomer generation, sure, some people had... Um, ended up with more successful careers than, than her parents did. And while they may have heard about it a little bit from time to time through the grapevine, for the most part, they didn't really know what was going on in too many other people's careers. Lucy, on the other hand, finds herself constantly taunted by a modern phenomenon, Facebook image crafting. Social media creates a world for Lucy where A, what everyone else is doing is very out in the open. B, Most people present an inflated version of their own existence. They lie about how good their life is. And C, the people who chime in the most about their careers are usually those whose careers or relationships are going the best. While struggling, people tend not to broadcast their situation. This leaves leaves Lucy feeling, incorrectly, like everyone else is doing really well, only adding to her misery. So, not only do you have expectations super high, Reality where it should be low. And that creates frustration and disappointment, that difference. But you also have all these people in this generation looking on Facebook and everything else and seeing everyone else's crafted life. It's not based on reality. Their reality is the exact same as Lucy's. But they've created this perception that life is amazing, that life is wonderful, that they're doing all these fun things, that their relationships are amazing and everything couldn't be better. So you have Lucy dealing with her own frustration and disappointment and also looking at the wonderful lives that everyone else is living, and that leaves her with envy and inadequacy. You add those things together, you're going to be unhappy. If you're going to be frustrated and, disappoint, frustrated and disappointed based off of unmet expectations, and you're also going to be full of envy and inadequacy because you're comparing your life to everyone else's, even though everyone else's life is not, like you're comparing it to something that's not real. Again, the grass isn't greener, it's astroturf. So you get envy and inadequacy. You put those things together, how can you not be unhappy? That's what Gen Y is, uh, is facing. I want to take a break here. Uh, I want to come back with this person's three... Uh, this whole uh, this cartoon that I'm reading from, it's on our Facebook page. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook and you can read it and spread it um, and share it. And the, the images that they use are really funny and uh, I think 100% true. Uh, So what do we do with this? What's advice for for Gen Y? Um, I got three pieces of advice. We'll give them to you next. 1-800-760-KFMB. Now, let me make one last point here in 60 seconds. I don't believe that kids are being trained or raised to want socialism. 
I don't think that kids are being raised to like socialism. I think kids are being raised to need socialism. Because if you're unhappy, you're going to be more you're going to, the, the the candidate who promises to make you happy, you're going to be drawn to them. If you are full of feelings of envy and inadequacy, you're going to be drawn to the candidate who wants to talk about equality and wealth redistribution and taking from the rich. So we're raising kids not to want socialism or like it intellectually, but to need it because they're unhappy and they're full of envy. And when you need socialism, that's very dangerous because that's a lot harder to uh, combat than someone who just like likes the concept of it or something. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. But on our Facebook page, search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook, and you can read this full cartoon. We'll wrap it up next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. All the gypsies in the uh, in the studios here all agree with this last story I just told. Uh, you can go to our Facebook page, search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook, and uh, like it. And you can um, the whole story is right there, the whole cartoon. I don't have time to go over the three pieces of advice. It's stay ambitious because that's good. Stop thinking you're special. You're not, and ignore everyone else. Those are the, the three pieces of advice. But let me make this final point here. This is why this matters. I think everything that this person wrote, and I'm reading from someone else's analysis. I think it's 100 percent spot on. Absolutely 100 percent true. But what? who cares? The problem with it is kids are not, again, I repeat myself, kids are not being raised to want a nanny government. They're being raised to need it. Very, very different, much deeper, much worse. Now, it's not a grand conspiracy necessarily. It's just the natural result of whatever culture we've created, maybe even with the best of intentions. But if you're unhappy, if you're disappointed, if you're envious which is how our kids feel right now. Clearly, you're more likely to vote for a politician who promises to make you happy and to make things more equal. Aren't you? And that's Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. So if people aren't led because they to these people because they want it, it's because they need it. It's dangerous. Mike Slater Show on Facebook, Slater Radio on Twitter, Slater Crusaders. We'll see you next Saturday. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.